Join Dr. Robert McGoring for Outliving Cancer, the podcast that provides each patient the tools and information they need to outlive their cancer. Hello, I'm Robert Nagorney, and this is Outliving Cancer. Today, I'm going to be talking about a topic of immense interest to the American public, to the world at large, and that topic is breast cancer. It's such an enormous topic, and there's so much literature, uh, and there's so much written and known about it, that I, I can't even begin to cover every aspect. But I'm going to make some introductory uh, descriptions because um, we're going to be interviewing one of my patients. And uh, when we do that, I think it's important for people to know at least basically the whole field of breast cancer management. So I want to give a little background on breast cancer as a disease, a little bit about its diagnosis and treatment, and then... Um, that will serve as a, as a background for uh, the very interesting interview with my patient, Maria. So breast cancer today in 2021 constitutes 281,550 new diagnoses, and that's invasive only. There are another 46,000 non-invasive, uh, uh, inf- uh, non-infiltrating cancers called cancer uh, ductal car- carcinoma and lobular carcinoma in situ. Those are much easier to manage, so we're going to focus in on the invasive cancers, those that break into the tissues and ultimately spread to lymph nodes and beyond. Now, um, there's a great deal of discussion about the genetics of cancer and genomic analysis, but it turns out that only about 10 to 15 percent of the breast cancers that we encounter are familial. That means uh, that they are transmitted from one generation to the next, and the most common of those is known as uh, the BRCA, B-R-C-A-1 and 2. The BRCA1 uh, uh, is associated with a 72% lifelong risk of breast cancer, and BRCA2 about a 69% risk. So, so in fact, if you carry these familial genetic predispositions, then you're going to be at great risk for breast cancer. And in fact, uh, patients undergo prophylactic, protective, preventative mastectomies. They actually have their breasts removed so as to remove the at-risk tissue. And patients who carry those mutations as a family mutation uh, also have a prophylactic hysterectomy so as to remove the uh, at-risk uh, tissues in the uh, ovary and uterus. So that is the most common family-based cancer gene, but there are others. There, there, there's check two, and there's a mismatch repair, but they're a little less common and a, list, a little less aggressive. The BRCAs are the ones that we really hear most about. When we talk about breast cancer, there are, there are two principal subtypes of cancer, the lobular cancers and the, and the ductal cancers, and by far the ductal cancers are more common. Uh, when we see breast cancer patients, about 70% of the breast cancers that we encounter are um, carrying hormone receptors, carrying the same hormone features that normal breast tissue carries. Normal breast tissue is responsive to hormones. Women will experience a, a growth or enlarging of their breast during their menstrual cycle. Women certainly develop a growth and enlarging of the breast when they become pregnant. 
And all of those things are because the breast tissue is where the body produces milk and the milk is used to nurture the child. And so the body is, reg- is, is readying the breast for the production of milk so that we can um, provide children nutrition. Uh, it's a very good idea for women to, to breastfeed. There's a reduction in breast cancer in women who breastfeed. So uh, the tissue in the breast is very responsive to hormones. And as a result of that, um, cancers that arise in this tissue most often, 70% of the time, have a a recollection of their origins and they carry hormone receptors. About 15% of breast cancers have a, a feature that is driven by a mutation, and that mutation is called the human epidermal growth factor receptor, or HER2. And HER2 is a family of cell receptors. These are on the surface of the cell, and they respond to external hormone-like proteins. And these receptors are broken down into four subtypes, HER1, 2, 3, and 4. And HER2 is the characteristic breast cancer driver. It's also found in some stomach cancers and other diseases, but it's principally a breast cancer finding. And then finally, the other remaining 15% of breast cancers carry features called triple negative. And what triple negative means is they don't carry the estrogen receptor, they don't carry the progesterone receptor, and they don't carry the HER2 protein. So they are triple negative, 15% more or less. That phenomenon occurs a little bit more in younger women and appears to occur more commonly in black women. For unclear reasons, that's, that's a, a problem uh, in, in that population in particular. Now, some years ago, Peru et al. conducted studies, and they did gene profiles on breast cancers. And they came up with a very interesting ability to subcategorize breast cancers uh, based on the gene profiles, based on a, a large number of genes. And the categorization uh, led to a four-subtype breast cancer. And the first and most common is called luminal A. And luminal A is the less aggressive, less proliferative, estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, HER2 negative. And so luminal A is actually sort of a favorable subgroup, and there's quite a a high incidence of luminal A. The second group, luminal B, is a little more aggressive. Uh, It tends to have a higher proliferation rate. It grows faster. It doesn't seem to express the hormone receptors, particularly progesterone, quite as strongly. Uh, and it's a more difficult group to treat. It often requires chemotherapy as opposed to hormones. The next group is basaloid, and those include the uh, uh, mostly the triple negatives, which are uh, rather different in their biology. They don't carry hormone responses, uh, response elements. They are uh, often aggressive. They often spread early, and they require chemotherapies and, and as we'll be discussing, platinum-based chemotherapies. And then um, the last group is the HER2, as mentioned. HER2 is this uh, mutational event that drives an on switch, and that constitutive on switch keeps those cancer cells growing and thriving and spreading, unfortunately. So HER2 can be quite a challenge, but there are many good treatments for HER2 today. Anyway, about 64% of patients present with local disease. That means it's either in the breast itself or it's jumped to a couple of regional lymph nodes but has not spread. Uh, 27% have spread into the regional lymph nodes more extensively. I I, I misspoke. 64% are actually localized to the breast. 27% are regional. And then only, and luckily, only about 6% of patients uh, are truly metastatic spread to places like bone, liver, or brain. And those are obviously a challenge. There are some features of breast cancer that are quite interesting, um, one of which is that there's about 
a 4% reduction in breast cancer incidence for every 12 months that a woman breastfeeds. So if a woman has multiple children and breastfeeds many times, she can reduce the incidence of breast cancer uh, measurably uh, by breastfeeding. And, and breastfeeding is a, is a, a very good uh, uh, way to nurture children, and, and it's actually interestingly protective for women. So there's a lot of reasons to consider breastfeeding children. Uh, there is a slight increase in breast cancer incidence in people who take uh, birth control pills, but it's, it's very small. Um, there is an um, increase in uh, breast cancer in women who take postmenopausal hormone replacement, but that is almost entirely for those who take the combination of estrogen and progesterone. So for women who take postmenopausal uh, hormone replacement, uh, the combination of progesterone and uh, widely used in the past uh, may be more risky, while estrogen alone, single-agent estrogen, does not appear to increase the risk of breast cancer, but unfortunately carries a higher risk of uterine cancer. Again, the uterus is another hormone-responsive part of the body in the female, and uterine cancer incidence goes up measurably if women take unopposed or single-agent estrogen. So the women who are most safe to take estrogen replacement uh, are the ones who have had other reasons to have hysterectomy. And if they've been previously been a hysterectomy, then the use of estrogen, single-agent estrogen, preferably low-dose, is actually safe and, and does not seem to increase the risk of breast cancer. There is a lot of literature, and this is very interesting to me because I'm very interested in cellular metabolism, there was a lot of literature on diet and diet impact on cancer. And I've mentioned before that the single most common association between diet and cancer is actually calories. So the more you eat, the more cancer you get, period. But there was a great deal of interest on fat. A lot of people were concerned that fat intake, that the increased lipids in the diet, that fat intake would be associated with breast cancer. And actually, there were a number of studies that looked at fat restriction and dietary restrictions, but particularly focused on fat restriction. And the initial data was rather good. It looked like, yes, if you really get away from fats, uh, you will not have a, a so high a risk of breast cancer. And so that data was maturing until 2016, when a large meta-analysis was published by CAO, CAO, uh, in the International Journal of Cancer. And they looked at a large number of studies, and they looked at the epidemiology of the outcomes of these studies, and they found and concluded that fat intake didn't seem to cause breast cancer. So now it seems that although diet has an impact, it's not fat in the diet that's particularly concerning. Now, when it comes to breast cancer treatment, we know that there's been a long history. Breast cancer was described in, in the year 3000 BC. I mean, it has been in the literature since the era of the Egyptians. So we, we know that breast cancer has always been present. But it wasn't until the last couple of centuries that anybody really began to figure out ways to treat it. In 1894, Halstead, reported the radical mastectomy. And the mindset was that cancer uh, grows deeply into the tissues of the body, and if you can eradicate it locally, it will be less likely to come back. And so the Halstead radical mastectomy removed not only the breast, but the pectoralis muscle, that, that fleshy muscle in the, in the uh, chest 
wall that connects the, the middle of the chest to the arm. So they removed the breast, the musculature, and the axillary or uh, uh, armpit lymph nodes. And the uh, Halstead radical mastectomy was practiced all the way from 1894 until the 1940s. Now, in the meantime, uh, a fellow by the name of Rentgen in 1895 described radiation as a therapy. And in fact, a study conducted in 1937 by a British group under Keynes, K-E-Y-N-E-S, showed that radiation could provide similar benefits to surgery, but it really wasn't adopted. And it wasn't until 1948 that Patty and Dyson, in England again, described what they called the modified radical mastectomy. And that was a surgery that removed not all the musculature, but just took the breast tissue and, and the lymph nodes. That remained the standard of care of the modified radical mastectomy until the 1970s when Italian investigators in Milan under Veronese said, well, why take the whole breast? Can't we just take a portion of the breast and get around the tumor? And they called it initially a quadrantectomy. And that ultimately morphed into what today we call a lumpectomy. So in the 1970s under Varanese, and then in the 80s under Fisher, Bernie Fisher, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, they showed that a lumpectomy was every bit uh, as good as the modified or even the radical mastectomy, and, and the amount of surgery was diminished, leaving better cosmetic outcomes, easier recovery, and breast cancer surgery today is much less disfiguring and much better. So with that, we then introduced radiation, and the treatments proceeded. But we couldn't cure many patients. Patients were undergoing surgeries, they were having radiation, but they were recurring. They were showing up in the bone, they were showing up in the liver, even in the brain and lung. Breast cancer increasingly came to be seen as a systemic or whole body disease. And it was in that regard that breast cancer being a whole body disease, we needed whole body therapies. So whole body therapies in breast cancer initially focused mostly on hormones. After all, as I mentioned, the majority of patients with breast cancer have hormone response. They have estrogen response. So the mindset became, could we block hormones? And the concept of blocking hormones was really actually introduced in the 1950s. Chemists, medicinal chemists, were working on various structures, various uh, uh, chemical compounds that they felt could, could block the effect of estrogen in the cell and turn off the cancer. So the concept of estrogen blockade became incre increasingly important. And by 1962, the first patent of a drug known today as tamoxifen uh, was successfully processed. Tamoxifen entered into the literature and was originally, interestingly, developed as a birth control technique, but ultimately tamoxifen, uh, primarily under the guidance of uh, V. Craig Jordan, a real pioneer in this field, V. Craig Jordan uh, in 1984 took tamoxifen forward as the treatment for estrogen receptor positive patients, and it is a game changer. I, I, I mean, the impact of hormonal therapy and the Im impact of tamoxifen on breast cancer is historic. I, I feel proud to have uh, known uh, uh, Dr. Jordan. I've met him many times. And uh, I mean, really, the, you, it's hard to describe the impact. There are 400,000 women alive in the United States today, more 
just simply because of this pill taken twice a day. It's 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 historic breakthrough therapy, and 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 the credit to Dr. Jordan and all of the colleagues who pioneered this work is is very well deserved. So that's the hormone story. That's that's what they call the selective estrogen receptor modulators, and more recently the aromatase inhibitors and the and the estrogen receptor downregulators. So this is all the hormone story. But we have already learned that first of all, not all breast cancer patients have hormone responsive disease, and that even those who do sometimes have very aggressive tumors that want to grow, and you need something else. And so that that led to the concept of chemotherapy cytotoxic chemotherapy, poisonous drugs that beat up the DNA and stop cells from dividing. And that really became an important addition when, again, Italian investigators under Bonadonna introduced the combination of cytoxin, methotrexate, and 5-fluorouracil known as CMF. And in 1976, a landmark paper published by the Italian group showed that you could demonstrably improve the outcome of people with breast cancer by giving them this chemotherapy, and it was very important. It was very important because we now had a tool that was not unduly punishing, a two-week-on schedule, not a highly toxic combination, could demonstrably improve the outcome of women, and it was a breakthrough. And then after that, things fell into into place because after that, the groups um, began to look at other kinds of drugs and the uh, and the introduction in the 60s and 70s of adriamycin, a very strong chemotherapy drug with the NSABP publishing, uh, National uh, Surgical Adjuvant Rest and Bowel Project publishing uh, a study in 1990 showing the efficacy of adriamycin and cytoxin, a little different from CMF. And then in 1971, Wani et al. out of the National Cancer Institute discovered the activity of the taxanes. These are natural products extracted from the western yew tree. And the taxanes, a very uh, complex uh, uh, chemical structure, ultimately being extracted from the yew tree bark, was ultimately synthesized. A, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Razadillo, was able uh, uh, in La Jolla to synthesize the, the taxanes, for the first time, they could make taxanes from simple molecules, and taxol became an extraordinarily important adjunct to therapy. And finally, Mamunas et al. put together the A, adriamycin cytoxin, AC, followed by taxol, ACT, and that, since 2005, has been the principal and most important combination, and it is extremely widely used <clears throat> in those patients who seem to have higher risk. And the risk today is predicated on a variety of models, the Gale model and different models, but more recently on molecular profiles. Several uh, laboratory uh, companies uh, offer gene profiles. These gene profiles use uh, discriminants to determine the relative risk of recurrence if a patient carries a high risk by either a mammoprint or an Oncotype DX or others. Uh, if they have these high-risk features, then it is often felt that they will not benefit, even if estrogen receptor positive, even if node negative, they will not benefit optimally from just hormonal therapy, and they will go on to chemotherapy. So, so we are now uh, uh, facing a, an era when we can, A, uh, identify the difference between estrogen positive and estrogen receptor negative patients. We can discriminate as to who is at highest risk, and we can uh, now apply, uh, slightly more judiciously, we can apply the chemotherapy uh, combinations 
uh, to more effectively treat patients. And, and as I mentioned, there are subcategories of, of disease. The estrogen receptors usually, usually benefit greatly from drugs like tamoxifen or aromatase inhibitors or other approaches. The uh, estrogen receptor negative, the triple negative, require chemotherapies. And the HER2 positive patients, uh, luckily today, have the, uh, the, the, the great discovery uh, of, of HER2, human epidermal receptor 2, and they can go on to HER2-directed uh, therapies, the first developed by Dennis Slayman and his colleagues in Genetech, uh, which was trastuzumab, or Herceptin, and subsequently uh, Herceptin combinations, which have proven so extremely effective in the HER2 positives. And finally, um, the development of subsequent uh, uh, pertuzumab uh, and, and immunoconjugates that combine trastuzumab with drugs uh, that are so effective. And I think that the HER2 story has been a, a real breakthrough as well. So breast cancer has been a much better story in the last two or three decades than it had been. And we're very pleased that we can help so many more patients with these approaches. Now, when we confront patients who present with large volume disease, a patient walks in the door, and we'll be discussing one such patient. The patient walks in the door, and they've got a three or four or five or six or seven centimeter mass. This is, a, this is like a lemon sitting in one of their breasts. And not only that, but you can feel, when you examine them, you can feel lymph nodes in the armpit and the axilla. Well, when you find that, when you see that level of disease, you've got to be worried that the cancer is not going to be easy to get around with a surgery that the cancer may have already jumped ship and gone into other distant sites. And so in that regard, you are now confronting the need to start off with chemotherapy, and that's known as neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Neoadjuvant chemotherapy, as opposed to standard adjuvant chemotherapy, is given before surgery. Neo meaning new is new diagnosis chemotherapy as opposed to post-surgery chemotherapy. Now, there are advocates for neoadjuvant chemotherapy and, and standard adjuvant chemotherapy, and, and there are adherence to both. We, we tend to use more neoadjuvant chemotherapy today, and I think particularly in the patients who present with the more aggressive disease, with the larger volume disease, with the lymph node positive disease, we tend to use the neoadjuvant approach so that we can get the tumor reduced to the smallest volume begin the process of eliminating distant micrometastatic disease and, and get the lymph nodes shrunk down as much as possible so as to, as to make it easier for the surgeon to get around the tumor. So I, I would say that neoadjuvant chemotherapy has become quite popular and, and is quite widely used. And, and I, I use it quite often in my own practice. Now, again, I, I mentioned that, that whether it's adjuvant therapy or neoadjuvant, when it's preoperative, the treatment is very guided by the tumor type. So, so in the HER2 group, in the, in the estrogen uh, receptor positive or negative who carry this particular human uh, epithelial re uh, uh, receptor, HER2, human uh, epidermal growth factor receptor number two, those patients uh, are candidates for Herceptin and Pertuzumab uh, trastuzumab and pertuzumab combinations, and, and the Cleopatra trial, and others have shown really good, really good results by combining chemotherapy. And more recently, there have been studies that show that, uh, that even more aggressive chemotherapy regimens can provide better. And even more recently, there has been data to show that the addition of immune checkpoint inhibitors can further enhance 
this population. So we are, we are beginning to see further improvements in this group. With the estrogen receptor patients, there's an interesting literature, mostly in Europe, where people are beginning to use what's known as neoadjuvant hormonal therapy. And I'm a big adherent to that. I think that's a great approach. For women who are strongly estrogen receptor positive, you don't even have to necessarily give them chemo. You can just give them hormones, get the same kind of tumor shrinkage, and then get these patients' tumors down to a much smaller volume, much easier to, to eliminate. And they don't have to go through all the, all the hardship of chemotherapy. It's just hormonal therapy. So that's really very elegant. And the, and the hormones tend to be strong. We, in younger patients, we use LHRH antagonists like Lupron or Zolodex, and, and we use... Um, we use uh, aromatase inhibitors, and, and we really try to, to get the hormone levels down to a minimum so that the tumors shrink away. And when it works, it can be really brilliant. You can get pathological complete remissions in estrogen receptor positive patients when you use hormones before surgery. So, so this is another wrinkle in the management. And, and if it's a large volume disease and it's strongly estrogen receptor positive, sometimes you can, you can get away with just hormones and then go on to surgery. But the group that we're really vexed by, the group that we really have to work on, is the triple negative breast cancer group. The people who present, they don't have estrogen receptors, and they don't have the HER2 target. These are the no ER positive, no PR positive, no HER2 positive group, and this group that fall into what's known in the Peru categorization of basaloid, or basal cell uh, tissues, that group are a problem. They are a challenge. Now, that group also often includes the BRCA1 and BRCA2 group, and those familial or somatic mutations uh, are, are DNA repair mutations. And, and so the BRCA patients often are in that triple negative group, not always, but often. And recognizing that this subgroup of breast cancer patients seem to be the group that did more, uh, had a better response to chemotherapy. I started working uh, in the 90s looking at chemotherapy treatments and combinations that could help people with triple negative breast cancer. And my work was focusing on a drug called gemcitabine. I've done a lot of work and I've published papers on the drug gemcitabine. This is an anti-metabolite that blocks cell synthesis of DNA. And gemcitabine a drug developed by the Eli Lilly company in the 80s, as it actually originally uh, uh, as a uh, antiviral, but ultimately converted to a chemotherapy drug, became very interesting to me in the 90s. And I began to study its efficacy. And boy, oh boy, did it work in breast cancer when you combined it with cisplatin. The combination of cisplatin and gemcitabine in patients with triple negative breast cancer, basaloid breast cancer, was remarkable. And we went to the American Society of Clinical Oncology, I think it was in San Francisco that year, and we gave a presentation, and it, was, it, was, it actually got some press coverage because it was dramatic. We were showing that women who were really in trouble could get much better with a platinum-based regimen. So my original presentations in the 90s led me to conduct a formal phase two clinical trial, and I took patients with the worst breast cancers, patients who had failed bone marrow transplantation, patients who had had every imaginable intervention. Some of these patients had had five or seven different kinds of treatment, and we gave them a combination that we just frankly invented. We just invented it. 
We came up with it based on the work we were doing in the laboratory. And since it had never really been given, we had to invent the schedule. And knowing what we knew about the way the drugs interacted and what they did, we used the doublet where you gave low-dose cisplatin and moderate-dose gemcitabine, and you captured the DNA damage and DNA repair inhibition, and boy, did it work. And so in, in 2000, in June of 2000, I published the first paper on the use of this combination in breast cancer patients. And, and that article, that, that sort of landmark small study, not only showed that the patients could have a dramatic benefit. 50% of the patients who were deemed utterly untreatable had a good and durable remission. But also, that paper gave me the opportunity to prospectively compare the most sensitive patients with the less sensitive patients, and I could show and statistically showed that we could pick the winners and losers before they started treatment. So that was a bit of a landmark paper for me because it was in the premier journal. The Journal of Clinical Oncology is sort of the Bible of medical oncology. And here we were able to show in an article that we could, A, engineer an entirely new form of therapy, and B, correlate the outcomes with our laboratory findings. Now, what that led me to realize was that we had grossly underestimated the importance of the class of drugs known as the platinums or platins. And I began to dig through the literature and began to realize that we were really missing the boat on the use of platinum. Before my paper in 2000, you couldn't find a single doctor in America who felt comfortable giving cisplatin or carboplatin to breast cancer patients. It wasn't done. It was heresy. And so the prospect of introducing platinum-based chemotherapy into the treatment of breast cancer took a certain amount of doing because doctors felt that platinum didn't work. And there were several reasons for that. One, the original studies were done in heavily, heavily pretreated patients. Second, platinum is not very good for people who are estrogen receptor positive. It's mostly the triple negatives. Thirdly, people at that time didn't even know what triple negative breast cancer was. It was just early in the understanding of these subtypes of cancers. So the, the random administration of platinum was uh, probably not not a good idea. And then finally, it wasn't until a guy named George Sledge, a very accomplished investigator from Indianapolis, had published the first paper where he actually gave upfront platinum. It was, it was after that, that that people began to really look at the drug differently. And so my experience enabled me in the laboratory using tissue culture to test platinum all the time. And we could begin to pull out the platinum sensors and more and more and more we began to realize that those were the basaloids or the triple negative patients. These were the people who weren't estrogen receptor positive. They weren't true 2 positive. These were the people who were triple negative breast cancers. And we combined the gemcitabine and showed that that, that was really effective. And, and it led me to publish a, an editorial in, in clinical breast cancer research, actually a journal published by Dr. Sledge. Um, it led me to, to publish an editorial, and, and that editorial uh, was uh, the once and future role of platinum agents in advanced breast cancer. That was published in 2004. And it kind of laid out the use and importance of platinum in the treatment of breast cancer. And, and I think that those papers, that and other papers I published, have substantively influenced the way we treat breast cancer today. Because once people began to test platins in breast cancer and began to examine and, and recognize that there were subsets of patients who did better with it, um, <clears throat> today, uh, uh, carboplatin and cisplatin are widely used in breast cancer. 
So, so in a way, our laboratory led us to a discovery and to a, a, an insight and a recognition that, that has really demonstrably influenced the way uh, patients are treated. And, and I'm proud to think that, that my, my laboratory model, uh, granting me those insights, uh, has had a, a, an impact on the way uh, patients are treated and, and, and an impact upon the survivorship of breast cancer patients, particularly those with aggressive cancers like the HER2 positives and the, and the triple negatives for whom platinums are particularly good. They're not quite as useful in the ER positives, although in some patients they are, particularly those with high proliferation rates and growth rates. But, but it's really an important adjunct to the triple negs, and today almost anyone with triple negative breast cancer uh, will get it. So, so with that background, uh, and that kind of introductory overview, and it, it, it's not even remotely meant to be exhaustive. It's just really for perspective. With that background, I, I'm going to be uh, doing a, a show with, with one of my patients, and it's such a good story. It's such a good story because it was a woman from Utah who reached out to me and who, who found me in 2017, who found me on her own looking on the Internet or somewhere, and, and, and came to see me with exactly the problem that we were talking about, the triple negative, large volume, lymph node positive disease. And, and that story uh, combines and, and uh, is emblematic of precisely what we do and why we do it. Because her story, as you'll hear, is such a wonderful outcome and such a wonderful insight into the biology of breast cancer, into the treatment of breast cancer, and into the smarter and better treatment that we can bring to the table through the Nagorno Cancer Institute technologies, the ex vivo analysis of program cell death, and the concept of program cell death and its impact on cancer therapeutics. Thank you.